when I, I was in college, I got to see one of the biggest attempts to divide people in all of human history, the Berlin Wall. Those of you who may have seen it know what it was like. It was really ominous. Solid concrete, 13 feet tall, so it towered over you, and of course that's not counting all the razor wire on top of that. Walls were five feet thick, and it ran right through the middle of a city, like, like a scar across a face. When the, fall, when the wall first went up, the East German authorities did surprise construction in the middle of the night. So one August morning in 1961, people woke up to find barbed wire separating neighborhoods and separating German from German and relative from relative and even mothers from children. Ridiculous. It was just terrifying. The, the leader of East Germany at the time explained why they had to build the wall. Quote, we have closed the holes through which the worst enemies of the German people could creep. What most people don't know is that there was actually a church inside the Berlin Wall. Now, how is that possible? Well, because the Berlin Wall was not just one wall. It was two walls. And they were a football field or a football field and a half separated from each other. And inside the middle there was what was called the Death Strip. And they had tank traps and guard towers, thousands of troops stationed there, trip wires that if you hit some machine guns would start firing. I mean, it was an ominous place. And in the crazy logic of the wall builders, they put one wall on one side of the church and one side, one wall on the other side of the church, and now members could not get to their church. It was a beautiful building. If you go online, you can see it. It was built in the late 1890s of reddish brown stone, and it looked like a little Gothic cathedral. Um, and I, I, thought, I think about that image of how a church, a church's life is wrecked because of people's propensity to build walls. Uh, you know, today, of course, we're far more sophisticated. Uh, we don't use concrete walls as much as we use, say, social media posts. And have we not, in the, in the last few years, just alone, seeing the Christian church divided by walls over things that I could never have imagined would be walls, like mask wearing, critical race theory, President Trump, and whatever it is, it seems like any subject comes up today, you pretty soon have Christians on this side and Christians on this side, and they're each looking over at the other going, I'm not sure you're even a Christian. <laughs> they look down on each other, right? And then, I mean, if you didn't have if you didn't have all these new walls, of course, we do have the walls that have stood a long time, like infant baptism versus adult baptism, or liturgy versus informality, or women's ordination versus that's unbiblical, or whatever it is. How do we deal with the divide between Christians, the walls between us? I, I've got to say, many people say, I have no idea, and that's why I'm no longer going. And I get that. As a young Christian, nobody told me it's going to be really hard at times. It's going to be really hard to live through splits or divisions. It's going to be really hard to work for peace and for unity. 
Um, I, I, I don't know if you've, you've felt that. I certainly have. And if you have, then you understand what the earliest Christians were dealing with in their own churches. Uh, they were looking down on each other. They didn't really trust each other. They didn't really respect each other. And they weren't sure what to do about it. And so Paul, who writes a major chunk of our New Testament, writes to them in this letter to the Christians there in Ephesus and maybe around that area. And what he tells them is essential for us. We really got to get this. Because if, whether we get this or not will to a large degree determine whether we stay in church or go, whether we find church a joy or unbearable, and how we, how we live our lives in relationship to the church. So now, for you to get the most from this sermon, it would help if you could answer this question. Which group of Christians do I find I struggle the most with? Who's on the other side of the wall from you emotionally or mentally or theologically or culturally? You just go, oh, you don't, you feel some distance from them. You don't really trust them. You don't really respect them. Do you have your answer? Did it come actually pretty quick? <laughs> okay. <laughs> then well, let's dive in. Uh, so Ephesus, as Becky told us, is in what is now Turkey. Apparently there are a lot of cats there. I did not know that. And they were trying to come together, but they couldn't figure out how to do it. Because the church was being built from two groups, radically, racially, and culturally, and religiously different groups. And it was hard. Like, how do we create one people when we've got two groups who don't understand each other, don't think the same way, don't have the same language, perspective, and don't like each other? Now, the first group, I guess I'll put them over here, is the Jews who have the blessing of the true revelation of God, what we call the First Testament or Old Testament. They have the Ten Commandments to give them a moral framework, right? And the second group are the non-Jews, the Gentiles, who are coming out of pagan religions and pagan philosophies. And so just think about, they're used to, when you say the word worship, going up to large temples of Artemis and reverencing giant statues of the goddess and consorting with temple prostitutes. That's their background. And now, those two are trying to come together in one church. And not only that, those pagans over here, uh, they eat meat that's been offered to their idols and is now associated with those idols. So the Jews call that eating at the table of demons. And so to avoid being contaminated, to avoid being complicit with their worship of pagan deities, demonically inspired pagan deities, the Jews will not eat at the same table. And of course, the Jews, uh, the, the, these early Jewish Christians, they're still going back to Jerusalem if they're able to afford it three times a year. And when they get to the temple, you know, the court of the Gentiles is way out there from the temple itself. It'd be like trying to watch a Bears game when you're standing in the parking lot at McCormick. <laughs> it's way out there. And if you walk and walk and walk and finally get closer to the temple itself, there's a wall. 
And on the wall, there's a sign which archaeologists found back in the 1870s that says this. Let's see if I can find this here. No foreigner, meaning no non-Jew, may enter this enclosure. If you are caught, you are the one to blame for your death. In fact, one time, Paul goes into the temple and some people see him there and they know that he hangs out with Gentiles. They thought he had brought Gentiles in with him across that wall. He hadn't, but that was their misunderstanding. And they were so enraged, they tried to kill him. So Paul has literally almost died near the wall of separation that is separating these two groups in this church. And now he writes a letter and says, to you Jews and you non-Jews, you, you highly religious and you are coming from paganism, you're coming to the same church. He, and here's how he starts, because he knows they call each other names. They have names for each other. Ephesians 2, 11. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews. That must have felt really good. And the Jews think, you know, there's really one way we can solve this. It's super simple. You become Jews. You do what we do. Um, we know how to be put right with God. And if not, don't expect us to accept you or eat with you. So when the church has its agape meal, meaning love meal, which is kind of like a potluck combined with communion, the Jews are sitting at their own tables and refusing to eat with the Gentiles. In our Anglican world, you don't hear uncircumcised heathen, but you'll hear phrases like, they're not really Anglican enough, or they're so stuffy Anglican, or whatever. And you hear these kind of references. People have names for each other. So Paul says, look, God figured out a solution. Verse 14, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. That wall that says you Gentiles cannot have access to God, Jesus tore that down. That wall of your poisonous attitudes toward each other, Jesus tears it down. And here's how he does it. It's really brilliant. He says, now there's going to be one way to God for two people. You all think, I have a way, you have a way, my way's good, your way's bad. And so what Jesus does, God in Christ, is he says, I'm going to clear the playing field and there's going to be one way to me. Verse 15, he did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. Now, the law was a blessing. It was a huge advantage to know what a holy life looks like. Looks like. But the law was not in itself, as Paul writes a lot of places, what unites you to God. It was good, but it didn't get you to God. The law was meant to prepare you for what Paul mentions in verse 8. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. So now get this. If the only way to God, if there's only one way, and everybody has to go through that one way, it's a leveler. It's a uniter. Because now the Jewish person who's like, look, man, I know my Bible. You know, you don't. I've been working on holiness my whole life. You haven't. Now they all say, I need Jesus. Everybody has to say, I need Jesus. Like, I'm a big mess. 
without the grace of God. I can't get to him by myself. I need Jesus, and I need him as much or more than you do. Well, all of a sudden, that wall's coming down, isn't it? I can't look down on you if I need grace as much or more than you do. Verse 18, now all of us can come to the Father through the Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Usually people groups form around, we have similar DNA, we have a common language, and God says, I got a better deal, stronger than DNA, the Holy Spirit. So now it's like, you person that I totally disagree with and don't understand, you have the Holy Spirit in you. I, I guess I need to reverence you. You're a holy entity now. God has made you holy by giving you his Holy Spirit. So I may not much like you, but now I have to see you as family. It's amazing. And verse 19, Paul concludes, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers, foreigners. You're citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. God takes strangers. He makes them friends. He takes foreigners. He makes them citizens. <laughs> he builds families with people who never thought they'd be in a family together. Jesus tears down these Berlin walls of hostility between believers. So now let me go back to the question I asked you earlier. Which group of Christians is on the other side of the wall from you? You know, as I thought about that question myself uh, this week, I realized I feel hurt and angry and exasperated by some uh, leaders within the white evangelical church that I was raised in. Now, those feelings may be legitimate. There may be real issues that need to be addressed. I see the Department of Justice is now taking up an investigation into the SBC. But rather than respond to my feelings about all that, those people over there, by, say, forgiving them, by praying for them, by reminding myself, you know what? Jesus really loves them. He died for them. I choose the easier way of looking down on them, and I'm actually very happy for the wall to go up. It could be higher as far as I'm concerned. Well, now I, I live more within the Anglican context, so of course we don't have those issues. <laughs> And here, I notice that some of my favorite Anglican leaders and voices are the ones who get the most vilified and criticized by other Anglicans in our tribe. I don't understand it. It hurts me. The label they get is not uncircumcised heathen, but it might as well be. And I look down on those attackers, and I think, golly, how hidebound and rigid and, and sanctimonious can you be? And if they start the wall, I'm happy to add to it. <coughs> now, who is it on the other side of the wall from you? Are we preaching yet? Because I'm here tonight to tell you on the authority of the word of God, whenever we build a wall, Jesus tears it down. He says, I don't do walls. Not like that. We can just take Ephesians 2.14 and fill in the blanks for those folks, those Christians who irritate us and enrage us. Let's see if we can do this, if you would follow along with me. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. This is verse 14. 
For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united, and here fill in your mind the names of those Christians. And now you can fill in the names of the Christians you like. Into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Jesus breaks down the wall. Now, it does make us squirm, right? Because we go, yeah, but what about those places where they're actually really wrong and (laughs) oppressive? Well, those things need to be spoken into, right? It doesn't mean they get a pass for behavior that disgraces our Lord Jesus. But we don't get a pass for when we do things either. (laughs) Okay. The late, great Eugene Peterson puts it this way. You say that you have almost nothing in common with these people. But isn't that just the point? You have nothing in common with them, but God does. This just happens to be the way that God goes about making a kingdom, pulling all sorts and conditions of people together, and then patiently, mercifully, and graciously making something of them. What he obviously does not do is pre-select people who have an aptitude for getting along well and enjoying the same thing. (laughs) Of course you don't have much in common with them. The church is God's thing, not yours. Amen, Eugene. So friends, I I just got to say, we can try to keep huddling behind the wall. There are many times I want to do that. It is seemingly so much safer and more comfortable. But can I warn you, using the the words of uh, an author who has has no connection to Christianity so far as I know, but he wrote a book on walls that have been built around the world. And and here's what he, he warns us with. After the Berlin Wall went up, East German psychiatrists observed that the Berlin Wall caused mental illness, rage, dejection, and addiction. The closer to the physical wall people lived, the more acute their disorders. The only cure for what they called wall disease was to bring the wall down. Starting in 1982, a pastor in the heart of East Germany asked people to pray for peace and unity of Germany every uh, every Monday night. His name was Christian Fuhrer, for what that's worth. And usually less than a dozen people would be huddled together in this huge old church that Bach used to try out his choral music in. But they kept at it until seven years later, in October 1989, 8,000 people crammed into this church for prayer, and there were, let me get the number right, uh, 70,000 people outside in the streets, which completely freaked out the authorities. And they, they, in no uncertain terms, they threatened to shut down the rally, and they said, we will use whatever means necessary. When the pastor came in that night, he could see soldiers up on the rooftop with guns. So, uh, but they prayed for an hour and then they marched out into the streets holding candles and for whatever reason, maybe because there were just so many of them, I don't know, the authorities uh, never opened fire. Well, in a week that just kept growing, the prayer rally grew to 120,000 people and within a month, You saw, if you were alive then, those masses of millions of people at the wall beating it with a sledgehammer until it broke down. 
One communist official later told a journalist, we were prepared for every eventuality, but not for candles and not for prayers. And the church in that strip, which has the name, I, you can't make this up, the Church of Reconciliation. What happened to that church? Well, sadly, four years before the wall came down, the East Germans blew it up. Uh, it was blocking the guards' view of people who were trying to escape across the death strip. But here's what happened. The members of that church who had not given up their love for it, they gathered up pieces of stone and rubble and glass from that church. Sorry. And they built what they call the Chapel of Reconciliation, which you can see if you go to Berlin. And the walls of that church are made of clay, and embedded in the clay is the stone, the rubble, the glass from their old church, and then it's compressed to give it strength. And um, there inside the chapel, behind the altar, is a depiction of the Last Supper, which had hung in the old church. It's badly damaged, but you can still see it there. And in that Chapel of Reconciliation, uh, Eucharist is celebrated, uh, children are baptized, marriages are blessed. We may build the wall, but God will tear it down. Amen. Uh, we're going to, by the way, we're trying something starting tonight for a little while. See how it goes. Take a couple minutes right after the sermon for some silence. So use this time to pray or reflect or however you want to use it.